You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today I'm talking to Stuart Laws, uh, one of the senior Stuarts in comedy and a man of uh, many hats. Stuart is not simply uh, a sort of absurdist lunatic of a comedian who appears to be a normal person and then very slowly draws you in to a really frothy and daft world full of kind of microscopic connections and uh, all sorts of stuff. So he's not only that, um, and indeed he's also not only uh, the person behind Grave New World, currently available on Amazon Prime, a uh, COVID-themed or indeed recovery post-COVID-themed uh, sitcom slash sketch show. Um, so not only, we're still on not only, um, but also a man who created, co-created Turtle Canyon Production Company when he was only 18, a slip of a lad, um, and who now has gone on to direct, I mean, absurdly enormous and impressive catalogue of shows for other comedians, including James Acaster's repertoire on Netflix. Uh, he's directed Joel Domit. We'll talk about those a little bit in the Insiders Club extras. Um, but also, uh, I mean, he's just... He's so busy getting things done. I'm very pleased to have had time to talk to him. I also highly recommend following him on TikTok. You can find that in the show notes via his link tree um, because he does wonderful, wonderful little daft micro sketches. He's basically working at an incredible rate and enormously impressive and also quite a, 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 a humble, private, quiet kind of guy. So uh, with all that in mind, let us welcome... After this brief rejoinder to uh, join the Insiders Club to get hold of 25 minutes worth of extras from Stu and everyone else who's been on the show recently that we've had extras, including the audio from the Insiders-only Zoom Q&As that we've had recently with uh, Alfie Brown, Nish Kumar, James Acaster's done two now, one in November and one earlier this year, um, and Fern Brady is doing one. That's coming up soon, so you can get invited to that as well. All of that at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. Now, that's all the ado. This is Stuart Laws. I, th- I can't remember when I last saw you live. It will have been at Edinburgh in kind of 2015, 16, I think, but that seems a million mm. years ago. And I kind of like, it, it didn't take long in the show before I get in the groove of going, oh, yes, this is what Stu does. <laughs> because you have this lovely kind of pile up all of these absurd ideas and then they sort of spill over and and then there are like multiple multiple kind of structural callback callbacks and ideas of do you know what I mean it's just like it's a real feast of absurdity and i really enjoyed it Thank you. i was proper, properly laughing out loud in the car which is always a good nice. for me and then i saw and it sounds like i'm going to say and then i saw grave new world and i hate it that's <laughs> not what i'm going to say at all <laughs> but i saw grave new world which is your series recently released on amazon prime very recently released, yeah, yeah. i think last couple of weeks um and it's in it's in four episodes, but it's not. It's an hour, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's an hour just like one of your stand-up shows. And I was watching it. The first one I found, I'm not going to say mystifying, but I was like, "What kind of thing is this? Mm. Is it a bit like Brass Eye? Is it a bit like 
something else? Is it a bit, you know what I mean? It's like a sort of a host doing stuff instead of a magazine programme. And it was only really by the middle of the second one I went, oh, this is a Stuart Law's hour, <laughs> whereby all of these stupid things are recurring multiply within it and like a great big... Do you know what I mean? It's like a big fountain of absurdity that somehow loops back onto itself. I like that a lot. Thank you. Good. Discuss. <laughs> Is that right? I, I mean, I think there was even there's even a joke halfway through Brave New World where you're talking about where you as the host are talking about how it's only been cut up into four because it yeah. makes it easier to sell. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's that. Obviously, there's that meta part. It was originally a 53-minute show and it started life as a potential live show i was like trying to work out what i was going to do with all these ideas i had about life after a pandemic that were a little bit skewed so it's like going to the cinema and it turns into a weird conspiracy thriller sort of thing that i had written um and then as i was writing it i was like this doesn't feel like a live show and I'd, i'd spoken to some people about maybe streaming something and it was didn't feel right and then was like I think it might be that I've written a TV show. And then we just, I just immediately just started booking in people. So I got Alex Keeley and Eleanor Morton. They script edited it and they sort of came in and sort of told me where I'd gone, you know, completely off chart, off reservation. Okay. Uh, and then just started booking and cast. And then was like, as, as it was being filmed, I was like, I think I know what this is more and more. And that's what happens with my live shows as well. I think you, in fact, Alex Keely has said to me, he's seen my show late July, previewed with me and thought to say to me, you should get rid of this little bit and then seen it three weeks later at the end of Edinburgh and being like, oh no, that was the crucial bit of the entire show. <laughs> <laughs> why, why, is, why is that? Why do you think, like, why, why would he make that uh, error? about it is it because see what turns out (laughs) is it because what you're what you're suggesting is that what turns out to be crucial is sort of deeply buried is that is that what you mean yeah i think so i so so i i I try and find the show and the same with grave new world and the same with uh my previous show short laws is all in which um which i haven't got a recording of so you wouldn't you haven't seen but like that was all about choices it was all about choices that you make in your life so i wrote all the routines out they were like based around binary choices. Um, but okay. I still didn't find exactly what the whole sort of mechanism which it oriented around until very late. And I think it's because I've got all the ideas and so all every little bit of material fits all of that. But until I find that final device, so the one that you saw, Stuart Law, stops was about fridging the concept yeah. of killing off a female character to give the male lead greater emotional depth. And it wasn't until I think even the, the second week of Edinburgh that I finally realized how I needed to tell that story and sort of rejigged it all. So all the, all the lines all mean something. It's just, I haven't quite found how to express it well enough yet for it to make sense. Okay. And with that, with that show that was about fridging, is it simply about the, when you say it's about fridging, is it that you've noticed that's a concept and you want to write something about it? Or is it like a personal story about loss that then wears the clothes of something about a kind of pop culture trope? Well, that show started from a cynical place, which is something I don't think is a good place to write from, is that I just noticed a lot of stand-up shows that were... uh, 
fairly on the rails building towards a, an emotional climax sort of thing and just thought there was something cynical about that and so I doubled down on the cynicism and went well I'll just do I'll just write one of those but that I'll twist it and I'll find a, a way and it was I think it was based around the idea that I thought it'd be funny to write a shaggy dog story about trying to put a USB in the right way up first time somehow leading <laughs> leading it like that being the big emotional twist of this big shaggy dog story about losing the love of my life and then yeah. everything sort of built from that so i don't i don't think that's a good place to write from to be like i'm going there's there's this type of show that exists that i don't like and therefore i'm going to write a parody of it i think that's not a cool thing to do um but i hopefully it's it's um it's genuine like my mum when she saw it she came out and so the show is all about uh a uh, a woman called alice who i met in a bakery or bakeria when i f bought a belgian bun and then forgot to take it with me and then had to go back and it's about how we spent the, our lives together and then i kill her off at the end in this big emotional thing um yeah. my mum was like so, so alice who's that then <laughs> And I was like, no, it's just, it's, it's nobody. It's literally nobody. She's called Alice because I do a bit about Idris Elba in it. And Idris Elba in Luther says, Alice. And it was a chance <laughs> to just do that. <laughs> okay. Okay. And with those, just, just on, on that, on not liking those shows on rails. Mm. And maybe this maybe i'm thinking this because and we will we will get onto this a lot because you are the sort of person who when you have an idea for a show you have the uh the resources and the understanding and the experience to go oh maybe this is a tv show i'll i'll make that then yeah in a way that most people can't just decide to make a tv show yeah because you've you've had your own tv production company for a long time we'll get into all of that yeah <laughs> maybe um Maybe it's because of that that I kind of want to talk about this element of it. But when you say that you you see shows on rails which are like fulfilling, you know, the the, the forty minute lull and all those yeah. kind of tropes of a, an an hour long comedy show, it reminds me a little bit of um, Adventures in the Screen Trade um, by William and I never know if it's Goldman or Golding. Oh, the guy yeah, that yeah, wrote yeah. Marathon Man and and uh, yeah. Princess Bride. Goldman. Um, do you know? Is it? It is definitely yeah. Goldman. Golding oh, the... Golding is Lord of the yeah. Flies. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So William Goldman, Adventures in the Screen in the Screen Trade. Have you read that? I have not. No, but it's, I've I cannot... little bits of oh. it here and there. Yeah. I can't recommend it enough. It's it's really interesting and analytical, and also unputdownable and funny and easy to read. And all the things I like. It's easy. <laughs> um, but he talks about the beats of a story and why when you see a movie and you come away going that just doesn't work. It's because they've got the beats, they've got the beats wrong. Mm. They've got the, you know, what I mean, there, there, there is effectively what he's sort of suggesting is that there is a structure that works, and it's up to the creator to to do something new with that structure that works. Yeah, and I'm just wondering if that is applicable to Edinburgh shows when we, you know, make fun of shows which build towards a, an inescapable conclusion or have a forty minute lull or whatever else those tropes are, whether you know, there are incredibly successful shows that employ those mm. rhythms and those beats. And I just wonder whether... I, I don't know quite what my question is, but do you, you see what I mean? Like, wh whether there is simply... Like, whether it is 
naive of us all mm. to 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 go oh god it's just another one of those where that is actually the form yeah i don't i i think uh, and i think me criticizing myself for making that cynical choice i i don't have a problem with the form and i think you know there's people out there who do incredible versions that do follow that form and like for example kieran hodgson's show maestro does follow that yeah. form but it's like amazing and like there's a bit at the end where he talks really openly about this amazing thing in his life and i won't spoil it but like i was watching it thinking i could never do this because i don't have that level of vulnerability sort of on stage that ability to open myself up in this way which is so which was so naked but like i loved it and i thought it was amazing and um uh so it's not that the i guess the issue with it is when it's done and you feel like it's being done uh in lieu of good comedy yeah sure it, okay. it's being done it, it's like right, well i can't do this so i'm just gonna follow this sort of like production pack of how to do a show and i think this will get me that you know fifth star or that fourth star or whatever and okay. i don't I, I that's why i don't like lost in translation as a film is i can i can feel like it's i can feel the reach that's happening the the, the cynicism to it and I, that's I, get, I don't i've seen that film but i don't remember it so well yeah like what was the what, what specifically do it you feels like it thinks it's a work of art yeah, okay. And I don't like that sort of vibe to something. And I'm not saying that that's what happens in stand-up, uh, but, like, I feel like sometimes there's, like, a, a a cheapness sometimes of just turning to those devices when we all use those devices, but when it's like, oh, right, you, you haven't earned this, but you haven't written 45 minutes of amazing, brilliant comedy and performed it amazingly. You've done you've done a, a bit and it's fine and it's nice and it's enjoyable but then now you're trying to twist my my brain into crying what are you doing this for yeah <laughs> do you think like it's a thing that i often um a hurdle i often have to overcome is the uh the desire to have a clever ending to a show mm. like not necessarily even an emotional one that's a, that's a, that's a hurdle i have to overcome as well like for some reason i think it was maybe a lot of us that sort of grew up as comics watching Kitson do shows where yeah. you go, I'm laughing the entire time and now I'm feeling really hard. You know what I mean? Those yeah. kind of things. There's, and we, you know, there, there, there have, there have been numerous kind of Kitson copyists over the years and people who have, people who've either tried to do that as well and not done it as well, or people who tried to sort of cynically, you know, lift the format and paper over the cracks of their own narrative, what have you. But what, one of the things I always want to do is, have a big emotional moment and one of the things i always want to do is have a big clever reveal so with your with your fridging one you know it does i wonder if you have a sort of um a liking for those kind of like the way it, make, it always makes me think of christopher nolan like when you watch memento and you're like well this i'm loving this this is great yeah this is thrilling this is exciting this is intriguing oh and look at the end all the bits fit together god that was clever and i and it gave me just enough of the information to be able to get there myself a second before it confirmed it so now i feel really clever and i can kind of roll around in it and congratulating myself do you <laughs> well do you have a yeah oh, the nolan thing is particularly relevant because the prestige is how I structure all my shows and how I, when I direct people, is what I talk about. So the prestige opens with uh, Michael Caine 
explaining what the prestige is. So he talks about the structure of a magic trick. And then he shows you a magic trick, which is a bird disappearing. Mm-hmm. And then reveals the truth of it is that one of the birds died and a kid says, yeah, but what about its brother? And so like basically in, in two minutes, the film explains to you what the rest of the film is going to be. And if you're paying attention, yeah. you'll be like, oh, that's the film. This was what, but then over the next two hours, it then does that, but slower. And then you get to the end and you're like, oh yeah, that was, I mean, I only found that out of watching like four or five times and being like, that's what they're doing. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and so that's the start of my shows. And like with stops, the beginning of it, I, I explain what fridging is. Yeah. And I explain what Edinburgh shows, what fringe shows are and how they're designed to have this big emotional ending. And so I give all that information. I try to work in a few jokes early on that sum up the show uh, as a whole so that then the rest of the show, I can just sort of take my time. And then literally, I mean, in stops, what I realized I had to do about a week into Edinburgh was every now and then stop and say, anyway, back to the story about the love of my life, because I was trying to disguise it so much before that. And I'd done all my previews to people who are really like comedy literate and who knew me and were like, oh, we see what he's trying to do. And then a week of Edinburgh going disastrously badly. I was like, why is this not working? And it was like, oh, because I haven't given enough information. And that's what Nolan does really well is he gives you all the information you need so that you feel clever when you work it out. That's Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I mean, it is. He, I mean, here's a separate here's a separate tangent. Mm. I do you remember? Do you remember? Um, uh, you had a bit about that's a given. Yeah. And I tweeted something about a joke. I, I saw a gibbon in a zoo and I said, that's a given. Yeah. And then like four people commented, uh, that's Stuart Law's got a whole bit about that. <laughs> there there are several bits of your um, oeuvre. And I've been watching loads of your stuff on TikTok as well, which I've really enjoyed. <laughs> that. Um, but the, the, when the, when uh, you did a recent TikTok video of um, of someone, you know, when a trailer says, forget everything you know. Yeah. And you forget what your hands are and start screaming, you know, crying. <laughs> very, very funny. Those kind of bits, like you more so than anyone, I find myself going, I've had that idea. Or like, you know, oh, you like making Nolan type stuff. I like making yeah, Nolan yeah. type stuff. Um, and I'm, I suppose I, if I've got a question about that, other than just... I have oh, access to curious, your Google Docs and I see yeah. it and I go, well, I'll get in there before we, he puts it out. Well, I wonder, I wonder the extent to which we are... Um, <laughs> if I say similarly mediocre white men, <laughs> that, is that putting a negative slant on it? Too, too negative a slant. I wonder the extent to which you feel you are a, a product of the culture around you mm. to what extent is your like you have this amazing ability to kind of you tickle the audience right your show structurally tickles the audience there are jokes on top of jokes so one of the reviews for it said oh you know in terms of gag density this is just off the scale and it was so weird because i read that before i watched stops and i've seen you live a bunch of times and i thought i don't i don't have you pegged as a kind of gag density guy and i don't know if they mean gag density so much as laugh density mm. Because watching the show, it's just, it's funny, 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 funny. And and that, like, I'm quite, I'm, I'm patting myself on the back now for coming up with the phrase, your show structurally tickles people. I mean, <laughs> you have this great ability to kind of, like, get a, like, whip them up into a rolling laugh with the stuff you do where you forget how to pronounce words. Mm. 
You know, and I've literally, I was watching that the first time thinking, well, that's, that, that's daft. It's making me laugh, but it's daft. And then by the time I saw the foyer bit on Grave New World, oh, yeah. I genuinely started questioning myself, going, how is that word pronounced? <laughs> so why am I saying all this? Because I wonder, to what extent do you think you as a, as a kind of person in and maker of culture have a unique take on things? And to what extent is it the form in which that take takes place is your trademark? I'm not sure I have a unique take, but what I hope... I remember um, James saying to me years ago, the thing is... This is the band, the band James. Yeah, the band James. <laughs> Acaster said to me years ago was, the thing is, Stuart, you're an observational comedian who doesn't understand what you're observing. Um. And so, like, my observation, it goes off into a – it's like I've observed that initial thing, like uh, like how you can't turn around after bowling a strike and not look smug or, you know, something like that. But then it goes off in, like, into my own little weird world. And so when he said that to me, I was like, oh, right. I didn't realize that that's what I was. And then suddenly it becomes like, oh, great. So all of my shows now are like slow burns to sort of drag people in. And they can start, you know, they, I've, I do use this a similar structure. And I guess Grave New World is similar in that regard, which is a load of quick fire, shorter jokes at the start to sort of drag people in and be like, yeah, he's got the chops to do this. And then it slowly gives way to longer and longer stories which then all tie together and you realise that those jokes at the start actually did have a relevance to stuff that were going on, even though they're just one-liners from the start. Um, so I guess that's what that's what the, the tickling is, is just to be like, come on, it's okay, it's all right, come this way. <laughs> Here's some observations that you'll recognise and now we're just going to go a little bit deeper in and we're going to do some weird stuff with it. Um, is that... Is that an accurate? Does that answer the question in any way? So this is Stuart Stew Stewie. So weird. I love it. I love it when I meet another Stew. Where I wouldn't say we were prized or precious, but it's sufficiently rare that when I meet someone else called Stuart, we look at each other like, yeah, great times. Um, so what a lovely man he is. And I mean, God, so much going on in this. What are we talking about? We're going to talk about kind of privacy and, and how Stuart is sort of shocked by the openness of most comedians, which is something that rarely occurs to me because we're so used to, I think a lot of us are used to this idea of comedians as people who bear their souls, who kind of disembowel themselves. Wasn't that a quote about Simon Amstel as close to a, to a man ritually disemboweling himself on stage, just sort of sharing everything and so we'll get into the fact that Stuart does not feel compelled to do that and yet has a rich comic landscape uh, within his work which isn't mining his own sort of real experiences we'll get, but it, but in some ways it is so we'll get into all of that um, and we will find out and this is good this is this is good we'll find out what makes comics attractive to him as assets from the point of view of being a producer so if you're interested in finding out um, the sorts of things you should be doing if you want to catch the eye of someone who works in 
uh, comedy production, then Stuart is a really good person to listen to on that subject. Loads of stuff in the extras as well, including his battle to win over Henry Widdicombe, uh, comedy's main tastemaker, uh, and also some stuff on Natterjack Toad and listener questions about why he wears gilets. And honestly... If you, I cannot recommend enough that you that you watch Grave New World and that you watch his uh, special on Next Up uh, stops because it will genuinely have you wondering about how you pronounce words that you know perfectly well how to pronounce, and if that is not a legacy, legacy, I'm not going to get into it now. Let's get back to this conversation with Stuart Laws after I implore you one more time to get hold of the extra content available to you and everyone else in the Insiders Club at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. Let's get back to Stu. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss just to come back to the the tickling i don't think it is you do shorter jokes at the beginning sure but it's the fact of it's the the silliness the daftness the absurdity do you know what i mean mm. it's it's like a really like to call it, you know, whimsy. Whimsy is kind of, <laughs> do you know what I mean? After Josie Long was really, really successful and inspired other people yeah, to yeah. do things that weren't as good as Josie, whimsy <laughs> became a very devalued kind yes, of negative yeah. term, you know. Um, but it, it is really whimsical. And it's really, like, I think that's a really interesting observation. You do observations, but from the point of view of someone who doesn't understand what they're observing. Like, are there are there other kind of... Are there other things you identify as being kind of key principles like that of the way you do stand up? Uh, yeah, I mean, aside from the always trying to find a, a word that I'm going to mispronounce in a funny way and just lay that down as canon as like, this is it now. <laughs> so you have to accept it or like, you know, calling my granddad, my nandad, just and just not really explaining it, just being like, and you, you'll see that in some shows, some people just being like, you have silence of people being like, what the hell is he doing? And some people immediately being like, ha, 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 I love this. Um, yeah. So I'll have those. Um, but like, I feel like it's um, like in stops, there's like, I want to have some sort of, I want to have some threads running through it that uh, don't detract in any way from the show. So if you don't get it, 
it, it's not like you've sat through a bit that's alienating um but like if you do uh, clue in on that level then it sort of makes the whole elevates the whole show so in stops there's that thread that i am friends with s club seven yeah and all the way through as linking devices because i i <laughs> i have like a thing about people saying things like anyway or you know th- those sort of like cliched and i know they're useful but yeah. like so i was like i'm going to go through s club seven lyrics and use lyrics from s club seven as my linking devices and that means that like about 35, 40 minutes in, people are starting to be like, he keeps saying S Club lyrics. And then there's that routine about seeing five adults in a car and how upsetting that was. And then going to the funeral and having a conversation with those adults in the car. And it turns out they're all people from S Club. And just those elements where like, if you're watching that routine, you're just like, oh, Stuart's got a friend called Tina and Joe and Rachel. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but if you are a fan of S Club 7 and you've been paying attention to that, it suddenly elevates that. So it's, uh, yeah, it's like layering a joke on top of a joke so that there's two levels that you, you can be enjoying it yes. in, I think, if that uh, doesn't sound too pretentious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and do you, when you write that stuff, like can you can you improvise that kind of density or does it have to be written or does it have to be improvised to end up in those kind of... I think I found a lot of things through improvising it on stage and going on and being like, have this bit of a routine or how does that tie in? And and then it's like the S Club 7 thing was Annie McGrath saying to me, surely you've got to make, just make those names the S Club 7 names. Because I had the whole bit of going to the funeral and having too many people in the car. And she was like, why don't you just say that they're, you know, I, and I was using different names. She was like, and I was like, at that point, I was like, it's too late for me to get my head around this, but I'll try, I'll try. And then suddenly it was like, oh, it's all tied together. So it's. Yeah, okay. Um, and I think that's an interesting thing sometimes. And you, you found it because you've, with my 2015 show, you were the one that was like the bowling and turning around and there's only one way to do, to bowl a strike and turn around. You were like, we'd previewed together and you're like, is that good? you could turn around and be Ted Danson there based on another routine <laughs> in my show about the ghost of Ted Danson. Yeah. 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 Um, and so I was like, Oh yeah, yeah. That is obvious. It's been there and it's staring me in the face, but I haven't seen it. And sometimes it does take that sort of collaborative sort of thing. And like, that was such a fun, like prestige at the end of that show to, to turn around and then secretly slip a Ted Danson mask onto my face. <laughs> Now, as soon as you said the word mask, now I remember yeah. that bit and the conversation that we had about it. <laughs> Until then, I was like, one of the great things about having as bad a memory as mine is occasionally being reminded of a nice thing you did or yeah. a great idea. Yeah, that's completely out of your head. As soon as you said mask, I was like, no, I absolutely remember that now. Um, so, so okay, so sort of layering and kind of uh, like collaging stuff together. Mm. With, with stuff like that... Um, does that does that come at the expense of deep and meaningful stuff? Or are you like, is there a part of you as a comic who is on a kind of personal quest to express a thing? Do you know what I mean? There's lots of different types of comedy, lots of and you, you know mm. I'm, I'm I hope I'm not asking that in a way that says, go on, prove that you mean something. But you know, there's a million different ways to do stand-up. Yeah, yeah. We see a lot more, I suppose 
I suppose I wonder was it was it more in vogue years ago that people would just you know Milton Jones and Tim Vine and Harry Hill are kind of similar eras I guess it's just jokes it's just daft fun yeah. jokes and Harry Hill and I then, loved I, yeah, oh yeah it was my him and Vic and Bob were absolutely the 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 people I loved seeing yeah 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 for sure um great i mean sad news for for tim vine and oh yeah Jensen. yeah well no they're very they're very fun and <laughs> but i had a genuinely I'm just being a dick. <laughs> just, i love it when people pick one name i go well them <laughs> um i'm just being a dick okay um but uh so there were those kind of like out and out joke stuff and now maybe it is in line with the nature whereby people like to reveal themselves on social media, you know, or, mm. or maybe maybe that maybe the social media thing is simply reflective of the trend at the moment, which is all about yourself and your journey and your struggle and that kind of stuff. Do those do you have any desire to or do you ever go towards that sort of stuff, that kind of territory in your shows? Or is it for you purely an opportunity to be silly? I think number number one, it's just to be silly and see what I can get away with. I think that's funny to sort of see what path I can lead the audience down and how far they'll come with me. I like that. And I like doing as many stupid things as possible. That's sort of number one. And that's sort of why I started doing it. And when I found my voice, uh, it was, that was what appealed to me. Um, but I've definitely, I'd say stops didn't, wasn't really an expression of anything particular, um, but there are like Stuart Laws is all in, which was my most recent show. It was very much about a bind, binary choices and things like that in my life. And it ended with a routine about me getting a vasectomy and part of it. And the, the routine that the show is supposed to be building up to is me being in Vegas with, um, my friends a decade ago and my friend losing loads of money. And then us going to a poker tournament and us me and him getting onto the final table and me knowing I had him beat, but he had lost so much money and I had uh, lied to him to get him to go to Vegas. So I had a decision to make. Do I fold and let him win or do I go all in and beat him? And then I go all in and beat him because he's a worm. But <laughs> <laughs> that is all. And then, um, but like that, I guess was um, the whole show was literally about the issue of having kids which has had like a effect on my personal life and that's what that show was largely built around and you know i've been in relationships that have ended because we wanted different things and that those sort of adult grown-up decisions were are being expressed in that show they're just not being uh vocalized they're they're being um the thematically vocalized, but not mm -hmm. uh, in as many words. And and did those? Do you write the show which is about silliness and is based on impulse of finding things funny, and then afterwards or mid process, kind of step outside and go, "Oh, that's what's really going on here." Yeah, or sometimes. Do you think, yeah, I've got to definitely. get this off my chest. And Ben okay. Tarjay has previously expressed to me what my show was about after I had finished it, and I'd been like, "Oh." <laughs> can you come in a little earlier yeah. in the process yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, which is interesting and the, you know, my 2016 show Stuart Law is so preoccupied with whether or not he thought he could he didn't stop to think whether he should uh, was about um, 
going back to my hometown in Iceland, which is just some more Stuart Law's bullshit. <laughs> I see Stuart Law is back on his bullshit. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it was about going back to the puffin sanctuary that I worked in for a, a summer. And um, turns out that my boss had passed away. And he was someone that I always really respected because he just didn't care what anyone thought. And he was like all of these sort of things. And it was like I had like deified him in my mind. But then going to the funeral and finding out that no one was actually there um, because he didn't have any friends and he'd pushed everyone away and things like that was is, was an expression of uh, like my, my dad who had done the same sort of thing. And when he passed away, there were people there. And obviously it's a dramatic license, but like – there were a lot of people who had had tough relationships with him. So that was a way of expressing that without actually saying out loud, it is a dead dad show. Did you, you only notice that afterwards? Like how can you no, only that notice one, that afterwards when Ben told you? There was another thread in that, which was about uh, my twin brother who was a psychopath and, uh, and about our fractious relationship. And the twist at the end is maybe I'm the psychopath with a visual joke happening and um i think ben had been like i th think that show is about you and whether or not you think your decision making about relationships and kids and everything is psychopathic and or you know what's what level of your you're dealing with like these personal issues basically okay 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 so yeah so my question is meaningless because there is more to it than that <laughs> <laughs> i was just thinking how could you write a show in which someone dies and you, and the funeral comes up without feeling like maybe this is reflecting a funeral that i've been through yeah i don't know if people did to be honest because it was so hidden behind like he was my boss at a puffin sanctuary who yeah <laughs> <laughs> who uh i can't remember i can't really can't remember a lot of the details but like yeah he was such a an asshole in it and was a dickhead throughout but i use that as a way of like you know you, and we all do it as sometimes you're like, well, that joke wouldn't work from my voice. So I'm going to assign it to a character within this show. And that way I can say, in fact, in, in Stuart Lord is all in, I talk about someone uh, wanting to stop at the next service station because he's absolutely busting for a cum. Now <laughs> <laughs> I could never, I felt like that was not a thing that I could, people would watch and be like, Oh, I, I'd feel like they'd, people would watch and be like, they'd be uncomfortable if Stuart Laws on stage was saying that. But I just was so amused by the idea of someone busting for a cum that I then just put it into the mouth of my friend who was half a real person who I did go to Vegas with, but also a completely fictionalized thing designed to be this um, uh, a vehicle for binary choices and uh, things we do in our life. But there was so much in that show that I got rid of early on when I was like, this is what the show's about. It's about this part in my life when I did this and this part. And then obviously all of that was going through. So when I was like, oh, it's actually about this, then because I didn't get the vasectomy until about a month before Edinburgh. And it wasn't like, oh, I'm definitely, that's what the show's building to. It was like, and I, even after I had it, I wasn't like, oh, I'll be talking about this on stage because I don't do that really. I don't talk about personal yeah. stuff. Um, and they even say that in the show where like, this is the big ending and I don't normally talk about, although I've, there's a lot going on in that show actually. It's too, cause Steve Dunn directed it and okay. we had an evening together where we plotted out how to make, how to do a magic trick within it to make, to do, there is a trick in it 
basically that yeah. ties it all together and it was a really fun evening of like drawing lines between things and working out how it all fits together yeah okay okay so you mentioned there that you don't get too personal in your shows mm. and that isn't something that you have to do like comics don't have to be personal but is there i wonder if i'm sort of picking up on a kind of a reluctance to get too personal in your shows yeah definitely there is an element of that and that's just sort of i sort of feel quite private person and i've always felt like that and so when i want to talk about stuff i want to make sure that it's in that as controlled an environment as possible and to me hiding it behind a few layers of absolute stupidity yeah is a a fun way of doing that because you know, i'm sort of getting out there but then at the same time no one's afterwards coming up to me like are you okay because i would hate to have to have those conversations i mean it's very hard now for my next question not to be <laughs> are you okay <laughs> <laughs> i mean do you like as in in that it pertains to your work what I'm just interested. I don't know what the right question is. I'm not asking, are you okay? Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine, thank you. Okay. Great. <laughs> um, but I'm interested because that's quite an unusual characteristic for a comedian these days mm. to be to be private. Is it? Well, maybe it's not. I suppose we all mediate the the ways in which we allow people in. But most people love talking about their trauma. Most comics love exercising and expressing one's trauma. Yeah. By getting it out on stage and getting a re getting a reaction of some sort, be that sort of cathartic or applause or kind of sharing the burden of how much they've been hurt and those kind of things. That's far more common. And I wonder why for you the like you have a like maybe you have a kind of a tighter grip on that. I am shocked sometimes by the level of openness that is expressed online. Um, and I don't necessarily have a problem with it because that would be weird. That's, that's somebody else's feed. That's somebody else's life. That's for, for them to make the choices on. I, and I'm sure that someone, if they wanted to, could probably screenshot something and then do a, this you question mark is, you know, suspicious emoji. Um, because I have talked about various things. I, I, it tends to normally be on uh, on a podcast or in a uh, in, in an interview or something where it's like, well, this is what this is for. And I feel like stand-up for me is definitely way more just getting up and being silly. And, you know, I, f I enjoy it. And as a kid growing up, I was always so quiet and so shy. And whenever I was funny, it felt good but like and it and it didn't make it made people want to be friends with me but not to be like huh, what let's ask some deep questions to him it was just like i was like oh Stuart's the funny guy so he's he's part of this gang he, he'll say something funny every now and then and he'll be quiet for the next half hour and i sort of quite <laughs> like that dynamic um because do you like that dynamic because it doesn't put pressure on you yeah, I think so. I've been, I went to a, a stag do once in like deepest, brightest Wales um, <laughs> with um, my friend who I write comedy with and 
do various things. He's the voice of the horse in the TikTok video where I call a horse. Oh yeah, I, w- I wondered who that was. Do I know him? Uh, you don't. He he's okay. he's in in Grave New World. He's the couch to five k five k to couch guy. I didn't- He's very funny. I didn't recognise that. It's a very funny bit. Um, so we used to do, you know, we used to like host talent shows together in our youth club and things like that. Um, so yeah. we we both went there. We had to get there late. So we, we both drove up together and we got there and it was basically some of the quietest people ever. And we walked in and genuinely everyone was quiet, just sat in this cottage in Wales, quiet. And we walked in and suddenly everyone looked to us to be like, guys, you've got some heavy lifting to do here. And it was very much like the funny boys are here and they need to lead this conversation. And it was the most intense, tiring weekend I've ever had. And I was like, this is not my friend Matt. He is an extrovert and he loves all of that. But even he was like, what was going on there? Why do we, why do we have to lead that so much? And like, they're all lovely people, but it was like, suddenly it was like a collection of people who, uh, who weren't used to sort of talking and being loud and having a good, I don't know what it was. And it was, yeah, that's not for me, I think, to, to have that's to dominate and lead things. That's interesting. Oh, my God. And is that is that part of, because you occupy a quite unusual position in comedy in that you are a comedy producer as well mm. as a comic. And so it's interesting when you said you and your friend you ran a talent contest. The the story most associated with comics on this podcast or any podcast is like, I entered a talent contest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the, I'm just interested in how you kind of <laughs> positioned yourself. Do you know what I mean? You ran a talent contest. Obviously, I, I think often people who are on the other side of the camera, my guess, having not spoken to that many of them or not mm. specialised in that, my guess is that people on the other side of the camera have a more, I always think of puppeteers. Like I, all the puppeteers I know, a lovely, quiet, shy people mm. who get a creative outlet whilst no one has to look at them. Do you know what I mean? And it's it like that's part of why I don't mean puppeteers like Nina Conti. I mean like yeah, yeah, um, like you know whatever Bud Rapid puppets. Jim Henson, you know, other, other. <laughs> James Henson. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so I wonder if it's something similar with you that you're kind of shy. Like the way that you have configured your career is such that you get to be private. In two ways, you get to be pri- relatively private, as comics go, by doing daft, absurd stuff in which yourself is kind of heavily protected mm. under all these... You know, you talked about layers. That's one of the things is obfuscation, isn't it? You're sort of like, you don't need... Maybe you don't need to take responsibility. If someone goes, oh, God, is he all right? They might the next minute think, or oh, have I misunderstood? Or is yeah, this yeah, actually yeah. that croissant? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, it, it enables you to yeah. kind of protect yourself in a kind of way. And maybe there's a parallel there to you being a comedy producer and videographer and a director, they also enable you to express funny ideas, but without having to be there with people checking if you're okay. It allows me to have my cake and grieve it. <laughs> That's all we got time for. There's no way, there's no way I'm doing any more after that. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that... Yeah, think I think so. To that? Definitely. And like, I, lo- I love... So we, I've, I've produced and directed like countless stand-up specials so like almost all of the original batch of next up specials were produced and directed by me and total canyon and the wonderful team we have and we're very lucky to have built up a huge talented sort of roster of people who work on these shows with us um and then obviously um 
Acaster's Netflix specials I produced and his most recent one I produced and Ed Gamble's Prime I directed and Tom Allen, Joel Domitz, Dara O'Brien's. This is a big list of people and like I love doing that and sort of bringing those to screen as as well as we can. Um, and there is something quite nice about that to sort of be able to be like, you know, people won't know unless they watch the credits and no one watches the credits. So um, there's something quite nice about all these people who I you know admire, but I'm also good friends with to be a part of their story sort of thing. And to, actually, let's not forget the, the elephant in the room, Stuart Goldsmith. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. on, uh, on the first day of the World Cup, 2018, a very, very hot day, I remember. Um, I, I would not have ever remembered that as the first day of the World Cup, yeah. but we're, we're not that similar, you and I. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it is really nice. I like being part of that. I really like directing shows. I really like like seeing someone change and sort of evolve and develop as a comedian um, or a performer. Um, I really like that. And like, I worked with Harriet Kemsley in 2015 and she she had a tough year because it was her debut and there was a lot of expectation on her. But like, I felt like the work that we did was, was helpful and helped setting a a base for her to develop with. And she's worked with various directors over the years. And I I think she's one of my favorite comedians. And actually she did that, her show. um, uh, How have I forgotten what it's called? Whatever her most recent show is, was amazing. And it's the only time I've ever cried in a show. And I know part of that was probably because I know her, but like the mastery that she had to sort of do that and to, to immediately make you laugh within seconds of making you cry and it to not be like a, it's time for you to cry now was like, this is great because this is what comedy is about. Comedy is not about just making you cry and wallow in that. It's about making you laugh, number one. But then number two, if you're going to tackle these issues, it's to tackle them with uh, a levity to it that, does leave something with people but not in like a heavy way so you can go away and feel like oh i've sort of felt something there about something but i've laughed about it and i can i feel like that you take that with you better than leaving a show in like a real deep sense of morose or whatever yeah um so yeah i like i like creating stuff i always felt like collaboration is absolutely what's great about comedy and you know, talking about you coming up with that topper for my entire show, I like. It was like that's amazing. I could, you know, it's exciting when things like that happen and when you can contribute that to other people's shows. And I know that there's people out there who have got jokes that when they tell them and it gets a big laugh, it kills them inside because they know that I came up with it. <laughs> <laughs> the sweetest, <laughs> the sweetest feeling it is possible to achieve in comedy. <laughs> A combination of success as a laugh and another comic's pain. Mwah! Oh, it's wonderful. Are you happy with the level of success you've achieved as a comic? Not. I'd like. I'd like to be doing more TV stuff of me or radio stuff. I'd like that, but like, I'm also extremely happy with everything that I put out and i feel like i've got an audience and can you know like grave new world i could make something like grave new world and the original plan was potentially that we would 
shop it around and see if like the BBC were interested in just buying it as a whole. And after about a week of sort of putting stuff together for that, I was just like, no, because then there's going to be so many discussions about which bits to cut out and how to reshape it and all of that, that it's going to take so much time that I won't be able to get this thing out. And so then when we started exploring other ways to get it out and Prime became an option, it was like, well, then that's better because we can retain as having this production company means that we can retain that creative control over it. Even though it's, uh, you know, it's, well, oh, so this production company's sort of in charge. Yeah, yeah. Who's in charge of the production company? You don't need to know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. It is interesting, that aspect of it, because um, I meant to ask you about, like, you know, the, the, the journey of getting a show made is so different now that I don't understand very much about getting shows made Mm. but it seems incredible to me it's like one of those people if you meet someone who can code you're like oh you're from my perspective you're a wizard because you can make a thing happen in a way that i simply can't get yeah yeah and i think you have a certain kind of wizard level understanding of well what do you need to do to make a show like you've been inside the 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 process so many times Mm. of going you get this you point it there you get that you put it there you you understand how to make a decision about the grading of the colour on a thing. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm basically, I'll pause here. I'm trying not to mention Louis C.K. because the obvious parallel for me is a thing that I heard years ago when he was saying, you know, everyone's coming to me saying, oh, we want, how do we get the Louis C.K. deal? And they're saying, you can't have the Louis C.K. deal because you can't physically take a show from idea to handing in the whatever. I don't even know the format you hand it in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like you hand in that thing. Like I can do that all myself mm. and you're in a position to kind of do that. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And uh, I mean, I'm in that position because Nick and Al who run Turtle Canyon with me and then the you know long list of people who have worked for Turtle Canyon over the years. And we, uh, we've worked out all these amazing people who are really talented and do various things who now, if I say, Hey, I want to film this thing. Um, I can pay you your your mileage and that. Can you? Would you be up for doing this? And if you're not up for it, uh, we're just trying this thing out. Then it's not in any way going to affect us hiring you for all of the other stuff you do because you're amazing. And I'm only asking you because you're a talented person. I'd like you know. Uh, and people generally are like, yeah, well, let's just try it out, see what happens, knowing that we pay them pretty well for loads and loads of things and we will pay them for these things where if if it comes off so people are prepared to and that, i feel very lucky that i've got a team of people that will do that and there's some people that absolutely can't commit to doing helping out on a thing because you know they need to pay their wages they, they need to pay their bills and things like that and um you know we've built up such a good relationship with these people that it means that i can make grave new world which in reality should cost 40 to 60 grand to make and i can make it for very very little compared to that maybe a couple of grand and Mm. you know people are coming in and doing stuff and i'm paying them for it but not a huge amount and we can then get it out there and hopefully create something off of the back of that um and i think like for me i treated grave new world as like an edinburgh show in that you'd spend however much on going to edinburgh and doing a show and because edinburgh wasn't happening 
it was like, well, let's put my money and focus into this. And luckily, you know, you do uh, an advert that gets picked up to be shown in various European countries. And so you get a sudden boost of money and you're like, well, perfect. I can, I can pay certain things now to make this happen. And that I feel like we set up this company with that express purpose of making corporates and things like that to then reinvest that money into our own creative projects. And we've built up the infrastructure and an office and a team of people who, uh, who are excited to make stuff. And that's why we all do it. And that's why we do stand up because we're excited to get out there and do comedy that, um, we've somehow kept that sort of teenage enthusiasm going and the company is sort of built and now is, you know, 75, 80% comedy, um, which compared to five years ago when it was like 10% comedy is, is, you know, exciting. Yeah. Okay. And with a, with a, I mean, that's fascinating. I felt I could talk lots about that because I'm just in, like, I never knew that was the journey of it. You started Turtle Canyon with your uh, co-creators really young yeah you so like me, me and al we were 18 when we started and then when we, we met nick um at pinewood we had moved into pinewood and then we'd lost a couple of clients and we were like basically on the verge of shutting it all up um and then uh al's dad said you need to buy a coffee machine and you need to just speak to people on the site and you just invite them over you say i'll oh, have a coffee at our office come over say hello we did that and then we met Nick and then we met somebody else and that person was like, why don't you three form a company and you'll be in my post-production house. And so then Turtle Canyon was officially formed and okay. then it sort of just kept growing from there. There's been some scary moments. Normally when a client goes out of business and owes us a lot of money and we have to sort of, we've already paid everyone. Yeah. Um, but we've sort of managed. Does that happen often? You've mentioned that as <laughs> if that's happened more than once. I'd say that over the, over the last 12 years, there's like a hundred grand that we've never got hold of that we should have. Oh my God. <laughs> Bit of fun, isn't it? And you, it's interesting with you as a, as a, as a producer, you are wearing kind of numerous hats. There's you, the comic, and you, the producer. And I suppose, given that we have the opportunity to talk to you wearing your producer hat, what sorts of things do comics do? Because I think production can seem very opaque mm. to comics. What sorts of things do comics do that make them attractive propositions to you as a producer? Like, why do you contact the people you contact? Yeah, that's interesting. In 2012 was when we sort of set up the YouTube channel for Turtle Canyon Comedy. And it was when I said to Alan Nick, I'd like to form like an, like a, almost an official wing to Turtle Canyon Media that's comedy focused. And I want to make stuff because, you know, we were making stuff, but we were just had no like central place to put it. So it would be like dotted around. And so then it was like, well, I'm going to work with people that I have gigged with and really like. Um, I think as it's grown and you know there's so many things on our youtube channel now that have like led to other things like us making sweet home Keringa with james led to us working on hypothetical doing the vts on hypothetical and it's sort of and you know i've worked on various pilots that have got nowhere off the back of things that have we've made so like for us i when I'm like approaching someone, like, have you got something? Or someone's approaching us with like, here's something. It's like, 
do I do I connect with that comic brain? Do I feel like they've got that some that that vision of like creating something very like personal to them, that it, rather than like here's a generic thing that I think would go viral, or like yeah. will will mass market appeal like that's. And I feel like most of the comics that you know we've got stuff when we worked with does seem to appeal does does have that sort of thing they're like quite esoteric comics who somehow have managed to make that work as sort of a broader thing um and then when when it comes to actually the making of it it's that feeling like there's a, a lack of preciousness to it but also at the same time a real care about the final thing if that makes sense it's like they want to explore that collaboration of, the, of what the, the show could be, but at the same time stick by certain things so they don't want a certain, you know, to push it in a certain direction. So you can explore all these different ideas and it feels open and it feels good and collaborative, but uh, there are like full stops to it where they're like, no, no, it can't go in that direction because that's not right. Mm. And I think it's also the job of a producer or a director or commissioner or whatever to recognize that that is a thing that people should be able to say and should be able to stick up for their thing and come back and be like yep all right fair enough that i think you're right and you've expressed that in a way that makes me understand it um i don't know if that answers it at all yeah i think so i think so it's really interesting i'm just kind of like from a from a comedy perspective i like to ask people you know what went right and what's gone wrong yeah and i'm interested in a in a kind of from a production perspective as well can you can you think of, I suppose, what, what's the equivalent question from a production perspective, specifically as it pertains to comedy? Have you, um, do you ever feel that you've ruined someone's joke? Do you ever <laughs> feel like you've made a bad production decision that you, that, you know, that you would look back and think, I didn't, I didn't get the most out of that person or I squashed something? I think there's probably are definitely examples of that. Um trying to think like the thing with turtle canyon comedy's youtube is that we often are making something that is potentially experimental or is an expression of an idea of a, or of a comic and is deliberately being made because it's we want to work with that person and so we're not tying it down hugely so sometimes if it's not quite you know what it should be is because we've taken a risk more than we've squashed something and messed it up so we've taken the risk and it hasn't quite paid off. It hasn't quite worked properly. And um, I think that's the the bigger fail area, maybe. Um, but again, those are the risks that I want to be taking. And also, you know, like you start making something, you don't know what it is. And then you you, you find it in the making of it. I quite like that I'm, I'm trying to think any wrong i mean there's definitely there were times when directing a live show when harriet was like no i'm not gonna i'm not gonna do that anymore because that bit that you keep trying to make me do because it's wrong and it doesn't feel right and it was just that i think maybe i had yeah that was five six years ago now and so i've sort of maybe i've learned and developed and got better at sort of understanding that relationship with uh, a performer 
and a writer and their way of working. Um, but I'm also a big believer in breaking something to try and find a fresh way of looking at it. And so maybe me for trying to force Harriet to do this routine that I thought would definitely work off the back of another routine. But, you know, that pigheadedness from me led to her sort of building a better confidence in other bits or, or, or in what her voice was. Um, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. And and in terms of your own... Cre- <coughs> excuse me. In terms of your own creativity as a comic and as a producer what sorts of things do you struggle with? Like, I, I know, I feel like I know a good bit about your kind of comic strengths, but mm. what are some of the things that you wish you had more of or? I think finding, finding that like connection straight away with an audience, um, it's something that it takes a quite a while for me to get. So it's, it's, I will be, I will be trying to win over an audience with personality for a long time in the creation of a show. I think I feel like it does take me a while and I don't, I don't know if I have any, like, I, I know I've got some bits that I can just go and do in front of any audience and they'll be like, yeah, yeah, great stuff. Lovely. But like, I feel like over the course of well, seven solo shows now um, that I haven't got those tight mainstream bits that will work and be like, oh, that's the bit that we put on TV. And maybe that's yeah. – and it's definitely a conversation I've had with my agent quite a few times of like, well, let's create those bits. And I think my last show was like a part of it was like let's just write routines and – you know, because we'd come up with a couple and then eventually it diverts into me swallowing a kinder egg and me deciding whether the surgeon goes in through my butt or through my mouth. And it's like, okay, well, I've gone, I've ruined it again. You've ruined the act, Job. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because being the producer of this podcast has given me a whole new understanding of the industry. It's let Mm. me sort of step back from it and see a little bit more of the choices. I mean, I say an understanding an understanding my own one it's not like there's some big secret i've become privy to no there is but we don't we don't let people know oh we won't tell anyone (laughs) it's it's certainly informed some of my assumptions yeah (laughs) if i can just kind of caveat that any further um do you think that your that understanding how the industry works from the inside production as well as the sort of outside performance do you think that has given you a different view or a more kind of holistic view of your place in the in the firmament or maybe your lack of place in in the kind of the the mainstream tv stuff do you think the things that you you think about yourself that that stuff that you've just said about like you know the positioning i always remember um who no i don't obviously remember because i can't remember (laughs) you can't begin a thing with i always remember and then forget the person who said and on what format was it on one of the many many episodes of this podcast or simply a conversation in a pub talking about the order in which people sit on buzzcocks the beardy weirdo always goes on the left right yeah yeah do you know what i mean there's like there there is a there's an overview of the the places at the table and who fits them yes do you know what i mean yeah when i did um 
like one of those trial shows where you go, you know, there's a bunch of comics and it's for a TV show and you're all going up and doing your five minutes to an audience of people who've got free tickets and don't know what it is. Um, when uh, who it was, there was Rob Orton and Pat Cahill also on on my night. And I, I was like, right. Okay. So I've got to be better than them basically and hope they got make it. a choice in that direction for the show. Cause yeah. it's slightly alt, but not fully yeah. alt, <laughs> uh, guy doing stand up. So it was like, right. Well, that's, and I don't think any of us ended up on the show on that particular show. Okay. So it was obviously they just went, well, we won't have one of those on this one or, or none of them were funny enough to fill that particular slot. Um, and I remember that talking to, uh, Jason Dawson, who is a producer mm -hmm. and, I, re I remember talking to him after that and I was like, well, I chose not to do this routine because it's quite long. It's actually about five minutes and I thought I should just do a bunch of quicker routines just to show that, you know, I've got them. And he was like, well, weirdly, maybe a whole five minutes that was about that one thing might have been the thing that made the producers go for you. Because it was like, oh, he's got that thing, and that's how it can be packaged on online when it goes on social media and things like sure. that. So, yeah, I definitely think there is an awareness of those way the positions where you are in in uh, in comedy, but it's it's it, uh, frequently conversations with my agent will be like, how do we get them? to just take that risk with you that first time because that's just that's all that's needed for that first one to go oh and he can do it and fine he's on there so let's get going um and so you know you put together like i don't know if you have to do these or whatever where you like before doing going in to do the trial night it's obviously it's changed because of the pandemic but you'll write up a document mm -hmm. like your your writing packet or whatever of like mm -hmm. here's what my routines would be for this particular show and you write that up and you're like right so I, okay so it's got appeal to i mean what do i have that appeals to i don't have a unique selling point apart from the vasectomy mm -hmm. maybe so then it's like well how do i find something that does connect because what i'm going to do a routine about bowling does that hold hold up does that connect with everyone definitely not anymore mm -hmm. um and so yeah trying to find what your unique selling point is and maybe that's is that what comedy has become a bit more on TV of being like, well, that's that comics, that one does that particular thing. So it's trying, I don't know what mine is on that regard because basically my whole thing is to slowly take you on a journey until you look back and you don't recognize where you are anymore. Yeah. And that doesn't yeah. necessarily work as well in short bursts. It's, so have you, have you been active in trying to, or does it interest you? to be active in trying to change that to make it more palatable? Or is it the case that actually you're really happy doing what you're doing? Oh, I'm really happy with doing what I'm doing. And I'm absolutely delighted with sort of what I'm getting to make. And I'm, you know, Grave New World, my new show, which is on Zoom, which is Single Father of None, is like, I'm so excited because there's loads of cool elements to it that I'm like so proud of. But, there's a part of me that's like, well, I could get more people to watch those things if I was on TV and doing those little yeah. bits. But aside from that, like, it's such a weird position where I can make something with Turtle Canyon 
and put that out or um but at the same time i've got like a radio show that's in being pitched at the moment with a different company with me as an individual so it's like a weird like and i've got a sitcom script that's doing the rounds at the moment from me as an individual not connected to total canyon so it's like and holly my agent is constantly having these sort of like yes but is this you or is this total canyon <laughs> or is this yeah sure so it's finding those things because you know um i would like to keep stepping further away from just total canyon and i feel like if i can make it bigger as a stand-up then i can help total canyon go up and at the same time total canyon can go up and i can come up with it and creating this sort of uh conglomerate yes a conglomerate of stewart <laughs> So that was Stuart Laws. Now, it's only just occurred to me that you might well be able to hear cartoons on in the background uh, because my children are behind me. Uh, my day has slipped and eroded all of the plans that I had while they were out. And uh, due to resolving a technical thing, which I won't bore you with, I'm now recording this while they're at home listening to cartoons behind me. And if it's driving you mad because you can't quite hear it, the voice I suspect you can hear is Brad Pitt as Metro Man in the movie Megamind. <laughs> uh, that is a glimpse behind the podcaster's bricks as opposed to up the wizard's sleeve which i've always thought sounds awful um i've got bundles of stuff on and i suppose i should talk to you about it i I've, i know it's been a couple of weeks off but i will tell you why it's been a couple of weeks off in the postamble for now that was Stu. Thanks to him for coming along. Great stuff at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. Thanks to everyone that's joined the insiders recently. Why don't we do one of those little rundowns of everyone that's joined recently? Hello to Kirsty, Richard, James, Julie, Chris, Siobhan, Kit, Mark, Oliver, Sean, Lily, Dan, Stephen, Catriona, or possibly Catriona. It's spelt Catriona, but who knows? Stuart, uh, Richard slash Rick, uh, and Leah, who very kindly gifted uh, Rick uh, uh, a birthday gift of a subscription um, so thank you to all of those of you who've been joining the Insiders Club in the last month or two great to have you on board uh, You, some of you will have received uh, special little uh, secret welcome messages so well done if you're one of them um, and apologies to one or two of you who missed out. I've been having trouble with my email client and this is the most boring thing a podcaster could possibly talk about so forget that um, but we really enjoyed, we did an insiders-only Q&A with Alfie Brown, and it was fantastic. Really, really good fun. Um, and we've had superb ones with Acaster and with Nish Kumar, uh, all now available on the Insiders feed, uh, the private podcast. There's one coming up with Fern Brady on the 24th of May, so you have until then to join the Insiders. But I would implore you, if you are planning to join the Insiders Club, just to be part of that and then leave. You might as well wham up your uh, the single month you're planning to pay. <laughs> you might as well put it up to something resembling a decent ticket price before jumping ship so with that in mind um what are the other things i have to tell you thanks to everybody thanks to Stu. thanks to nathan wood produced the episode uh jake crossland logged it rob smouton did the music and pete dobbing is your podcast consultant so um uh, that's all of that thank you for listening more coming soon i've got some really really fun people coming up on the podcast so very very exciting conversations forthcoming but i won't say any of their names until they're safely in the can Nearly said my can then, horrendous. Um, goodbye to the casual listener and uh, post-amble listener. I'll chat to you in a sec. Bye-bye.
I'm losing my mind. That's the main that's the main thing I want to talk to you about. I'm losing my mind. Now, not in any way that you need to worry about. Whenever I talk about anxiety on the show, many of you very very kindly get in touch, but often when you do that it gives me more emails to reply to. <laughs> um, but no, not to not to uh naysay or or to kind of uh whatever the word is. Uh, people who very kindly get in touch. I am fine, but god damn it, I've been walking around with just you know you know anxiety when it's like sitting there permanently like a bowling ball in your stomach, like you're just constantly looking over your shoulder or like I mean I normally only ever do this for sort of two or three days at a time and then I bounce back to normal and it's just been there for days and days now and I'm not quite sure why and it's got a couple of triggers and is it because of the therapy more recently and is that positive is that is that helping i think it is i'm sure it is um but um normally you know the the, the kind of the deep the sort of deep background hum of like you know anxiety is when it, it feels like for me it feels like you've had bad news and then forgotten it and you're just walking around like you've had bad news and it's been days and days and days anyway i feel like i'm coping who knows i think i think i woke up this morning thinking oh i'm probably coming out of it now nope okay um but uh, uh that is ongoing so thank you to those of you who said nice things last time there's no need to write it and check i'm all right i'm absolutely fine thank you but Part of why I've been so, um, I'm just mega focused at the moment. I've got so much on that I'm, (laughs) I remember, I remember the heady days of starting my comedy career and really not needing to do much during the day. Um, I was kind of an idiot because I was, well, you know, the, the, I mean, obviously when I was an open mic, I had to earn money during the day, but, um, but by the time I turned pro, there were definitely a few good years of just going, I can do whatever I want. Looking back, whatever I want should probably have been work harder and write more jokes. But um, now, Jesus, even when I'm in a bit of an anxious state, I've just got to get on with stuff. Is it parent? It's probably parenthood. And that, in many ways, that's very mentally healthy. I thought that over the whole of the pandemic, the fact that my uh, child or children will run into um, the bedroom sometimes at quarter to six in the morning. Uh, shouting bums in an attempt to make me laugh, which is a lovely way to be woken up. Um, but the the sort of the constant presence, the constant requirements, even just the infrastructural requirements, to say nothing of the love um, of a family, really keeps you uh, motivated and doing things. And that's really useful. But, God, I sound mad, don't I? That's the thing. I do sound a bit mad at the moment. All I'm trying to say, I think, is that it's a bit of a trying time at the moment, but here's why. I'm, I'm doing multiple projects and I think I'm coping with them. And I'm interested in whether... I think I'm coping with the workload at least. I'm busy, but, you know, you should be busy. These are your work hard years, as uh, someone once said to me. Um, so... You can get rid of this gap, Nathan, while I work out what the fuck I'm dribbling on about. Maybe you should leave that in. <laughs> yeah, go on, leave it in. Leave it in, I don't care. Have I gone mad? I've I've been... Here's a thing, here's a thing. Let's try and be compassionate to the voice in our head that is behaving all negatively at us. This is such a good little nugget from therapy recently. And I, I can say this without, I, without risk of this being an overshare, but I love this. And for once, you know, you do a bit of therapy and then the session ends and you... Even if you have the wherewithal to have made a few notes, how often do you actively engage during the week with uh, a thing that you um, that you've just learned? How often do you go? Oh, that's a good point. How often do you really genuinely reflect on it and make it part of your thinking? This I absolutely did. I love this. 
and I'm going to talk about this on um uh I'm doing this resilience series on LinkedIn. If you're a business person and you're on LinkedIn, jump on LinkedIn. You can find me at Stuart Goldsmith Comedy Insights and uh, connect with me there if you fancy. I'm doing a I've challenged myself to do a, a short video every day for 30 days. 30 days of resilience is the hashtag um to help me kind of I mean it's not launching but you know to help me take to market all these resilience things I'm doing. Um and I will do one of these one of those little videos about this, but it's specifically compassion to the voice in your head that is naysaying everything and and doing you down recognizing that the little voice in the back of your head that says yeah are you i mean with me it's not like there's a it's not like there's a voice in the back of my head saying you're a piece of shit you know what i mean i don't have to cope with that but it is more that there's this sort of worrisome troubled kind of i don't think we can do that i don't think you can do this you're not good enough you won't you know what i mean it's like it's a bit it's a bit less like a sort of plague night and a bit more like the frog of despair from red dwarf where <laughs> some aspect of rimmer's mind is um embodied in a swamp full of frogs that are all going useless 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 it's a bit like that god that show is well written um and the point that my therapist was making is that in these and I, this is a wide enough point i feel i can share it with you with you i'm sure it'll be appropriate to some of you um which is that that voice which is going useless is also worthy of compassion. That part of you is a thing that you created in order to get something done. In my case, probably to spur me to action. And I've benefited from that. But just because it was useful once doesn't mean it's useful now. But just because it isn't useful anymore doesn't mean that you've got to sort of hate it and turn it into this awful character that you have to, to fight off. Instead have compassion for it and go oh there there frogs <laughs> i love those little useless frogs they're so funny um or m maybe they were funny maybe they were quite funny and they massively resonated but, but let's hope it was both um it you can't just go jesus these fucking frogs honestly part of you is allowed to go oh poor little frogs poor little frogs imagine that imagine thinking that the best way for us to cope with things is that you sit around telling me I'm useless. Like, I I get where you're coming from, and the more I kind of work to understand why you had to start saying that, the more compassion I can give you. But I just love the idea of compassion rather than a fight, drawing them towards you. I've talked about this before. Years ago, my friend Ninja Chris claimed that there was a, a mystical... Oh, he didn't say mystical, but like a lost martial art whereby as someone attacked you, you would realign their chi. You would sort of block them and then kind of like you're, instead of a strike, it'd be like a sudden deep tissue massage such that you would realign their chi. So whilst they were fighting you, they became happier and didn't want to fight you anymore. So it's, it's a bit like that, but it's just compassion. So when your little frogs are whispering that you're useless, just try visualising taking one of those little frogs and giving it a little stroke and going, oh, bless you, you you think it's necessary to treat me like this. Ah, oh, you poor thing, because that will help you reframe it. I feel that went somewhere. Nathan, leave in the bit where I... God, I sound like Rogan now. Yeah, Nathan, pull up the fucking thing. Um, <laughs> Nathan, you may leave in the bit where I was stumped and didn't know what the hell to say, because I feel that went somewhere. And it is up to the listener whether they wish to be so perceptive that they simply I mean if you haven't learned by now to fast forward to the end of the post amble to get, just get the last minute of it and work out what I was trying to say then when will you thanks for listening
more stuff coming up next some great episodes on the way very excited speak to you soon Corient.com.